AL2 listeners, you can find audio from this series and other series alongside study guides and sermon notes at l2today.com. If you have any questions following this podcast, you can email feedback at l2today.com. Isaiah 9, 1-7 But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nations, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This has been the reading of God's word. We're actually looking at, through this holiday season, um, we're, we're looking at trying to address some of the more difficult discussions that we tend to kind of run into. Um, Tim Keller identified three different classes of Christians, which I think most of us can identify probably in to all th- three categories at different parts of our lives. So I think some of us tend to say, well, I'm that one or I'm that one. But in reality, you're probably all three at different, different parts. But the holidays become particularly challenging because there's no place to hide. If you are an isolated Christian who has primarily engagements or relationships with other Christians, the holidays are really challenging because you're meeting with people that you don't know how they think. You don't know how they express their ideas about world events or about the holidays themselves. And so it becomes really challenging. You're sometimes taken aback or shocked. If, you're, if you are an undercover Christian, a person who has a lot of meaningful engagement with non-Christians and uh, the holidays become challenging to you because you are now engaged with people you dearly love and yet you can't bring yourself to articulate your faith. You aren't used to that. And so both of us, both of those situations kind of bring you to a situation where the, the holidays can bring a lot of anxiety with them. And so what we're doing over the next few weeks during this holiday season is we're trying to look at some passages that really describe the coming of Jesus in a way that uh, kind of explain it so that you can identify when those, when those discussions come up, number one, but you might be able to discuss your faith in a way that's credible and, and not offensive or even ridiculous. And so that's what we're attempting to do. In this particular passage you just heard from Isaiah, it's, it's one of the clearest prophecies of Jesus' coming. It was about 750 years before Jesus would actually engage his public ministry in Israel. And this prophecy really tells you the significance of his coming and what it would mean not only to Israel but to the whole entire world. 
not only to the people that would actually believe in him, but this prophecy goes beyond that and it touches something that I think really enables us to engage a lot of different, different types of discussions. Um, what we're going to look at first is in the prophecy you see this overcoming of darkness and it's a very interesting concept. Um, the end of the prophecy in verse 7 of chapter 9 is, is revealing something that is an incredible reversal. In, in other words, if you understand the flow of the book in Isaiah, um, chapter 8 is describing Israel in a condition that is, is really dismal. There's a lot of corruption within the company, or within the company. Um, I do a lot of corporate <laughs> consulting. <laughs> uh, so anyhow, um, there was a lot, of, a lot of corruption within the country. Um, so there's a lot of different things that we could, we could relate to. The chapter 10, immediately following chapter 9, is, that's the way it normally works in all the books of the Bible too. Um, uh, I have a cold, and so I'm probably about 20 IQ points down today, so I hope you'll cut me some slack. Um, so anyhow, um, chapter 10 is talking about the nation of Assyria mounting their assault on Israel to the north. And so the kingdom of Israel was divided after, after Rehoboam's, there was a rebellion after Solomon's, in the king, Solomon's uh, reign. And the, the tribes to the north, there was ten of them. And Isaiah is writing right before Assyria comes and crushes them. And, and so the history of all of this is, 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 is fascinating when you begin to look at it because the country is falling apart from the inside in chapter 8. And then you have this prophecy that is an incredible reversal of fortune in chapter 9. And then chapter 10 goes to this prophecy of Assyria being actually the hand of the Lord that he's bringing against Israel to destroy it. And so the placement of this prophecy, not only its accuracy in what would happen 750 years after Isaiah wrote it, but its position in this book is, is truly remarkable. And it, it kind of brings about an understanding of, of what Isaiah was trying to do. He was telling the people, listen, this condition you're, not, you're in right now is not good. And it's not going to go well for a long time. But in the end, it's going to turn out okay. And so it's, it's really quite interesting. Now, in verses 1 to 3, you actually have a statement of the gloom that Isaiah was mentioning is the carryover from what I already said. The, uh, in chapter 8 and verse 22, it says that Israel had begun to turn away again from God and had stumbled back into this darkness. And it was a darkness that had with it, he calls the gloom of anguish in 8.22. And so they're stumbling in this thick darkness which captures a major theme of the whole Old Testament. And that the old, the old Testament is story after story of God actually breaking into the lives of men and women and establishing relationship with them. But it's also a story of almost the exact cycle of people coming to faith and then turning away from it. And so in this sense, this prophecy speaks deeply to what most of us have experienced. 
And I'll just be really transparent with you. I've experienced experience. If you can't see these kind of cycles in your own life, I think there's something wrong with your recollection of your faith. It's kind of superficial and naive to some degree because we all tend to kind of come in and out of our faith at times. We tend to get really serious and we'll, we'll be moved to a season in which it seems like the Lord is remarkably close to us and that He's doing incredible things in showing us how to understand and perceive relationships or, or the workplace or just our, our neighborhood in general. And then it seems immediately after that, we kind of fall back away. We fall back into the same rhythms, back into the same routines and habits. We might even go back to former relationships that we know are going to take us into the darkness. And so the placement of this in the overtaking of the darkness is truly remarkable. And so it's against that backdrop of this in and out that Isaiah actually makes his prophecy. And he says that there will be no, there will be no gloom for, her, for who, her who was in anguish. And in the latter time, God would make glorious the way of the sea, Galilee of the nations, which is actually the city from which Jesus would launch his ministry 750 years later. And so the coming of Jesus is, is, is placed in a context both historically as well as in our, experientially in our own lives in which he doesn't come into a setting in which everything is okay. He actually steps into the scene in history when everything is bleak. It's as dismal as it can be. The nation has been destroyed two times, by first by Assyria in 722, and then Babylon in 586. And the country is no longer even a nation. And so there's a very, very interesting context in which all of this kind of comes to the scene, to the forefront. Now, these verses show us, I want to touch upon our personal path one more time before I move on to the next point. They, they actually show us that our lives don't have, even for those of you that have never come to Christianity, and certainly those of us that have, we know our lives aren't just one bitter failure after another. What they're like is seasons in which it's really challenging and difficult. You might not be able to pay your bills. You don't know how your relationships are going to work out. And then it seems like there's a, kind of an easing up, a dawn of sorts. And, and, and it's in those settings that we tend to turn away, just like it was with Israel. And so the statement of this darkness being removed or this light shining in not only to a nation, but into the lives of human beings, is something that we need to be conversant in. There's something about it that we need to be able to describe and talk about, whether it's our own lives or whether it's the, lives, uh, the life of someone that we know and care about deeply, that it's, it, there's a place where Christianity can actually remove the anguish and the gloom. And so it's into that that we begin to see this, that this life and character of Jesus becomes the next portion of this prophecy. Now, whether you are actually right now into a season of difficulty yourself or whether there's someone that's close to you that you're going to uh, engage a discussion with over the holidays and you deeply care about them, the story of the gospel oftentimes simply seems too good to be true. 
And it, it almost begs the question from people that are in that struggle, both Christians as well as non-Christians, it begs the question, how could the answer to the problems that I've never ever been able to overcome simply be Jesus? That seems too simplistic. It seems overly simplistic in the sense that it's almost like Christians can just, you know, like a mantra, just begin to assert, well, it's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's Jesus. And I can tell you that in the minds of Christians that are suffering and in the minds of people of non-Christians that are struggling to figure out what they believe about their own lives, about world events, what's going on with ISIS, all of those things, that seems too good to be true. How could a man that lived 2,000 years ago that was killed by his own people because they were so jealous, how could he be the answer to all the mistakes I've made, to all the shame that I carry, to all the people that I've injured and all the people that have injured me? That seems radically simplistic. And I think it's something that we have to be able to engage that because it's a very, very natural type of question. Now, I believe Isaiah apparently understood the incredulity that people had when they, when they hear about God offering people this kind of a salvation, this kind of a kingdom showing up in human history. And because of that, he actually is speaking to people that become so toxic that they destroy their own lives. They destroy the lives of other people. These are the people that are coming out of darkness. But you see, that's who we are. We're not as if we're the sanitized ones that avoided all of that difficulty. We're not. And I think oftentimes we can come across as if we're speaking from a place that we don't know that experience. But Isaiah knew that this is what it was. And he knew the incredulity that people would have and the difficulty that they would have embracing it. So he actually began to give, I think, three evidences of the life and the character of the individual that was capable of making that kind of a difference. And so in verses 4 through 6, there are, there are given a, we're given a threefold description of the life and ministry that are the basis, or the, actually the four is the word that's used in it, of such hope. And so the first of these evidences that he gives is that Jesus will actually succeed in his mission. Now, the primary purpose of Jesus when he showed up in the first century is to declare John the Baptist, who was Jesus' cousin, who was born six months before Jesus, he had a ministry that was in full blossom before Jesus started his public ministry. And John had a habit of saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is near. And even in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus would say, the kingdom of heaven is near. But in the middle of his public ministry, he said, behold, the kingdom of heaven has come. And that declaration fried the circuits of the Jews. Throughout Israel, for, for thousands of years, they had anticipated a Messiah that was going to step into the scene and break this horrible yoke of, of oppression that Rome had put upon Israel and several nations before Rome. And... And so there's something to this. And you take even the thematic verse of Mark's gospel, chapter 10 and verse 45. Most scholars think that that is probably the centerpiece of all of Mark's gospel. It said, Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to offer his life as a ransom for many. See, there's the tension. 
at the very time that he's announcing the coming of the kingdom and placing himself in this lineage of all that Israel expected to be this victorious champion that was going to free them from all their oppression and set all things right, even according to this prophecy, he was a servant. And it was incredulous to them to get their head around that. And so when you begin to really look closely at the Gospels, you begin to see that the, the oppression that Jesus faced the rejection that he faced was it wasn't from nature because he could he showed himself in the back of a boat and and his his apostles they wake they wake him up and say don't you care that we perish and most of them were sailors so this wasn't a, a just a fire alarm and he gets up and he says hush be still and everything's quiet and the term that is used in the original language is the madzamai which means they, they were actually just terrified at what he did. So it wasn't nature that oppressed him or rejected him. It wasn't, it, it wasn't even sickness and death. He oftentimes went around healing people that were blind or straightening hands that were crooked or legs that wouldn't work or even restoring health, uh, life to people that were dead. That wasn't the primary rejection. And the resistance that he met wasn't even demonic. Because he, he could stand into, in, in a graveyard with a man that was possessed by thousands of demons called Legion, and he just said, be gone. And the demon left. The, by far and away, the resistance that is speaking of here, the yoke that would be broken, was the rejection of the religious elite. Those people who thought that they knew God, they believed that they really understood. They had the frame in which the Messiah was going to show up. They just knew it. And it wasn't him. It had, nothing, it had very little to do with him at all. And that was the basis of it. He came to save people, but they didn't embrace it. They hated it. It was too good to be true. And so this idea of Jesus succeeding on his mission, that the yoke of his burden would... In, would actually be thrown off as something that's quite interesting. And so in, in spite of all the miracles and the signs that Jesus would give to prove his authority, his, his claim to be the Messiah was more than Israel could bear. It was way more than they could bear. The result was that he was rejected by his own people because he was thought to be an imposter. Now, I, I want you to listen to a quote taken from Bartholomew and Goheen's book called The Drama of Scripture because he captures this, they, they capture this very well. He says, Jesus' story explains the coming of God's kingdom in a way that the Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders, cannot swallow. They are looking for a kingdom in which Israel will be suddenly, forcibly delivered from the control of pagan Rome. They are separatists, self-appointed guardians of Jewish identity, which they believe is under attack, threatened by the people's assimilation to that surrounding pagan culture. Jesus boldly challenges the Pharisees' rigid views on the Sabbath and food laws. He deliberately eats and drinks with all those the Pharisees would exclude. But it is important for us to understand that Jesus' challenge is not simply a matter of his rejecting Jewish cultural symbols. What he does is reject is what these things have come to represent in his own day. Separation, hatred, and a thirst for violence. Now, I don't know about you, but there are aspects of conservative Christianity that sound exactly like that. 
there's aspects of Christian circles, especially conservative Christian circles, that, that act as if vengeance is their primary objective. They act as if, okay, the stopping of the assimilation of the church or our country into a certain basis, a certain direction, that is our primary objective. And it was, those, it was to those people that Jesus was the most shocking when he is invited after Matthew stands up and gives up his tax collector table, which was a remarkable feat in and of itself. He has a party in which, to which Jesus goes, and the Pharisees put their, it's almost like they put their feet right on the threshold and says, doesn't he know that he's eating with the sinners? Doesn't he know that he's not supposed to be there? And so there was something about Jesus' mission that when it was accomplished, it just rocked everyone's world. And there's a time that we have to be able to say, have we really come into a calibration of our, our values or of the things that we believe are the most important? And I don't believe that there, there's anything wrong with doing things that would strengthen and support our country. There's nothing wrong with that. But if, it is, if our country ever becomes the end, we've lost our way. If it ever becomes the sole means by which we're able to say we will live or die according to the success of this or that, we've lost our focus and our vision has become corrupted. And so there's something in the basic element of this where Isaiah is describing a rejection and in Isaiah 53 for instance when he describes the rejection and how it would actually work itself out he says he was oppressed he was afflicted yet he opened not his mouth and like a lamb that is led to the slaughter however in in these verses the yoke of his burden the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken the affliction and the suffering that Jesus would be subjected to would, would be completely undone. And it would prove to be the very vehicle by which God would accomplish what he sent his son to do. And so it, this is a remarkable prophecy. It's hard to get our head around, I think, the grandeur of that single verse when it says, everything that stood against him will be undone. Now, that brings us to the second evidence. The second evidence is that Jesus actually turns war into peace. Verse 5 depicts the, the implements of war that are no longer being needed as worldwide peace will characterize Jesus' kingdom. Now, for many non-Christians, as well as some Christians even in our day, that sounds completely unrealistic. There's too much going on. There's war around the world in so many places now. There's oppression. There's martyrdom taking place and a lot of different, the persecution of Christians in different parts of the world. And so this throws you into what theologians call the already not yet tension. There's a part of Christianity that has brought peace in the world in a way that it's never been like this before. And, and because of the internet, because of our awareness of global issues, at the very same time, we're looking at the not yet part of it. So we stand kind of in the tension, in the, in the chronology or the unfolding of this, and we're, we're in some place in the middle. It isn't what it once was, but it isn't what it will be either. And so this verse is kind of a, one of those interesting mixes. Now, 
The expansion of the kingdom that Jesus inaugurated came at a time when the entire world languished under the cruel dominion of the Roman Empire. And in, in November, uh, it was no November 4th of, of AD, AD 68 that, um, that Nero would declare Rome, he, he would declare Christianity religio illicita in Latin, which meant an, an illegal religion. And so Rome did, did everything it could to exterminate Christianity. And so it brings about this incredible perspective of, of uh, actually enabling us to see how this peace began to take place. Because what Jesus did is star, spark a change in history of a magnitude that very few of us have ever truly comprehended. Now, Andy Crouch, in his work, um, Culture Making, he interacts a lot with Rodney Stark's book, its historical book called The Rise of Christianity. When Stark wrote it, he was non-Christian. And all he was trying to do is research the historical evidence of Christianity starting from just a handful of people to becoming coming where it is today. And so as a non-Christian, he's writing this. Now, at one point, Stark makes a statement. He said, in an empire that had a population of at least 60 million. By AD 350, there's believed that over 33 million of them were Christians. So how did, the, how did a movement that had a few thousand adherents at most in the first century become half the population of the empire by the fourth century? That is a valid historical question. How could that happen? Now, I want you to bear with me as I would as I kind of share with you, there's a couple, of, there's kind of a long quote I want you to think through that establishes this, this point. This is what Crouch says. He said, their lives simply did not look like their neighbors, but they were not cut off from their neighbors. The culture they created was public and accessible to all. At least two major epidemics claimed up to a third of the population of the Roman Empire in the first centuries of the Christian era. In the face of terrible condition, pagan elites and their priests simply fled the cities. The only functional social, uh, functioning so social network left behind was the church, which provided basic nursing care to Christians and to non-Christians alike, along with a hope that transcended death. The church had no magic medicine to cure the plague. But it turns out that survival, even of a terrible disease, has a lot to do with one's access to the most basic elements of life. Simply providing food, water, and friendship to their neighbors, Christians enabled many to remain strong enough that their immune systems could mount an effective defense. Conscientious nursing uh, <clears throat> without any medication could cut the mortality rate by two-thirds or even more. The result was that after consecutive epidemics had swept through a city, a very disproportionate number of those remaining would either have been Christians or pagans who had been nursed through their sickness by Christian neighbors. And with their family and friends decimated by the plague, it is no wonder that many of these neighbors seeking new friends and family would naturally convert to Christian faith. That's remarkable. And so it wasn't sexy churches all over the empire. It wasn't hip music. It was people that stayed when the plague came. When everybody else left, they said, it's our job to care for the sick. And they did. 
And there was, there was kind of an immune system. He goes on to talk about this. The antibodies that they developed, they weren't susceptible. They, they were just as susceptible as any, to anybody else in the plague. And so thousands of Christians were dying. It wasn't as if they were bulletproof and then they could go into these plague-ridden cities or just remain in them without getting sick. They just said, this is our job. And so by, by the time the plagues were over, it's estimated that a third of the empire, a third of the people in the empire had died. But the change in the cities came from people who just cared. I recently had a, a short interview with a, a young man that grew up in our church. And I knew him when he was very young. And he showed up at my office on, on an appointment several weeks ago. And it was the first time I'd seen him in probably 10 to 15 years. And he shared with me that his, his, his relationship with his mother was completely decimated. There was nothing left of it. But he said, I can't leave it like this. And so we talked, and he developed a strategy, and he said, this Sunday, I'm going to go and talk with my mom. And he sent me an email immediately after that and got on my calendar again. And he said it was remarkable how his mom responded. And I can tell you, I was, I was genuinely taken back at his courage because I've met with hundreds of you that have those types of relational conflicts that are afraid to step into them. There's something about them that's too great. It's too difficult. It's too complicated. But for this young man, there was nothing that was going to deter him. And so he stepped into it. And to, to my amazement, he reported back how well it went with his mom. And then he came back into my schedule and he said, okay, my next situation is more difficult than this one. I'm thinking, oh, great. I said, I'm batting a 1,000 on this one, so let's don't mess, this, mess with this. And he shared with me that there were some extended family situations that were far more complex and far more difficult than that. And that he wanted a couple weeks to prepare. And he said, I don't know when I'm going to do this one. And last Sunday, I received an e email that was remarkable. When he, when he interacted with his grandfather... His grandfather went to the piano, and that was the most difficult one. And he went to the door, knocked on the door, and as his grandfather sat with him, he brought up the most delicate issue of all. And the whole time he was afraid his grandfather was just going to stand up and walk away. And he stood up and started to walk away, and he articulated all this in this email. And his 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 grandfather walked over to the piano and he picked up this picture. And it was him and his siblings. And he came and he sat down again. And he said, today, you gave my life back. I've, I've gotten up every morning and looked at this picture and I never believed it would happen. Today you gave me my life back. You see, that is not keen, apologetic prowess. That, that is not taking seminary courses, and there's nothing wrong with those types of things. I'm not diminishing that whatsoever. That is just raw love. It's just concern. 
And there's a peace that Christianity has planted in this world. Not because we're all the sharpest tools in the shed or because we have all these seminary degrees or all this sophisticated training. Christianity has brought peace to the world because we love each other. And it's remarkable that this prophecy could capture that. That he would actually be the one who would bring peace. Now into the last one, it brings us to this last evidence, is that Jesus will reign in glory. And so in verse 6, Isaiah just, he lists four things, four titles that would be given to Jesus that would actually define the characteristics of his leadership for those who would actually ever believe in him. The first is his counsel, and wonderful counsel is something that all of us seek. I seek it. Over the years, I have developed and cultivated and, and nurtured relationships with just a handful of people that I know that I can go to them at any moment in time. And what they tell me will be sound. And I cherish those relationships as much as any that I have in my life. And so when he says he's going to be called Wonderful Counselor, he's getting at the fact that he is able to understand and to explain things to us that we would know no other way. His power, when he's called Mighty God, is that's the title of the Lord himself. And it's saying that the Messiah would be God incarnate. When it says that he's an everlasting father, it's depicting the benevolent care of a father that loves you and a father that is committed to your protection and your provision. And lastly, when it says he's the Prince of Peace, it's kind of pulling the thread from the previous statement that here is a ruler that will bring about peace of all the nations, of all the nations. And so when you get back to verse 7, it's culminating in the statement that the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You see, again, going back to the sandwich of a country of a country that was collapsing because of its corruption internally and the threat of its external termination, this prophecy appears between that chapter and the one of the nation that's coming. The, foot, the footsteps are already being heard. And in the midst of that, you have every part of the gospel in this. You have creation and the fact that we all know what should be. You see the story I told you about that young man? We know we shouldn't go for years with decimated relationships. We know it shouldn't be like that. And yet, it, we know that the fall is an articulation of not just what happened in a garden a long, long time ago. It's something that has collapsed in our very hands. It's not something that we have to go out of this room to discover. It is something our own conscience testifies to, that we have turned aside and we have done these things. The redemption that you see here is the promise of a king that promises to bring into place a kingdom 
of a magnitude and a glory that we can scarcely imagine. And you see, that perhaps is the easiest thing to talk about with anyone over the holidays, is to ask them what they believe a good world would be. Is it one where you no longer have children aborted? Is it one in which there is no more hungry children or hungry men and women? There's no such thing as poverty. You see, all of those things are the very things that Christianity believes. And the future glory is found in this Messiah. Now, I suppose that if you've never sat in the darkness crying out that someone would tell you how to understand it, if you've never sat in the darkness wondering if you'll ever find your way out, perhaps these things would mean anything to you. But if you've ever spent a single day in the gloom, the gloom of anguish, this is good news. Because it's the promise of someone to come that is going to make a complete change of fortune. Not because you're finally going to get the job you always wanted. Not because you're finally going to get a, have the marriage or the relationships that you want or start the business and have the success or the influence that you want. But the fact that someone could know you better than you know yourself and still love you and receive you and promise to protect you. That is a remarkable kingdom. And so if you've never been there in the darkness, I, I can see why this wouldn't mean anything. But I don't believe that there's very many of you watching in this room or watching online that haven't spent some time, some time indeed, walking in the darkness. And so the coming of Jesus is the promise of the coming of hope. A coming of hope that will never ever be extinguished, will never ever relinquish its advancement in our world. That's the good news. All right, let me take a couple of questions and I'll be done. How exactly is Jesus' government increasing? Is it in the hearts of men? Is it a physical kingdom? Or is it a mixture of both? Some of you are masters of getting five questions in one question. Um, I believe that ultimately Jesus' kingdom in its full expression will have a governmental aspect to it. I think it's, it's, it's unavoidable. If you look in Isaiah 65 and Isaiah 66 at the prophecies of the full expression of the kingdom, there's no way it cannot have political and governmental implications. But I don't believe that we've always seen it like that. And so when Jesus said, well, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, and he said you can, it's the smallest of all seeds, and you put it in the garden, it becomes the greatest plant in the garden. Or it's like a pinch of leaven, when you put it into the lump of dough, it leavens the whole thing. He's talking about an advancement of a kingdom that over time is increasing in its power and its influence in the world. And I think that is where we're at. We're in that trajectory. And so at any given time, I think you're, you're going to see elements of the expression of Christianity in, in various governmental type and political expressions. But at other times, you're not going to see it as much. But in the end, it's unavoidable. It's inevitable. 
that there will be an expression of Christianity in virtually every place in government. Now, the second, let's go back to that one. Um, that was all just for the first part. So I, somebody got their money's worth on this one. Um, is it in the hearts of men? Is it a physical kingdom or is it a mixture of both? Um, it is a mixture of both. The promise of its full expression is that the elements of the fall become reversed, like lions laying down with lambs. Children playing around the den of a, of a, of a poisonous snake and are hurt. That is the advance. Now, there's a lot of implications to this that we don't have time to go into today. But I believe the world will be caught up with Christianity. It will see that it is credible. It will see that it is intelligent. It will see that it actually is very plausible in its understanding and explanation of reality. And people will believe it. They do all the time. They come in to me as non-Christians, as atheists or agnostics, and they're willing to consider what Christianity says about how to repair a marriage, how to actually repair economic damage that you've done to your own life because of your coveting. You see, that is the advancement of the kingdom. It's not an advancement that is just crushing people under its heel. It's an advancement that is winning people over by the brilliance and the wisdom of God in the Scripture. That is an amazing thing. Now, most of you know that my, my doctoral work and my lifelong commitment is to change counseling. And it's because I believe that the psychology that we find in the Bible is the finest anywhere. And I believe that as we understand it and grasp it, which I certainly don't want to, to pass myself off as if I do, but as we understand more of it, it will allow us to direct people. It will allow us to help people that are in prison so that they don't go back. It will begin to unlock doors in our city and in our state and in our country that will never be locked any other way. And it's those types of advancements that all of us need to be engaged in, whether you're in law or engineering or teaching, mechanics. Christians will be given an ability by God to change the world. That's the advancement of the kingdom. It's not by force. So, all right. With that, I appreciate the questions. None of them came in while I was done. Okay, good. All right, let me pray, and we're going to ask Zach and the band to come forward, and we're going to finish our worship. I'm astounded. In 23 years, I've never heard you sing like you sing now. Um, I think there's a lot of factors in that, certainly Zach's commitment and, and what you see by the band and, and their commitment to the music that you hear. But ultimately, good music can't cause you to worship. Ultimately, the things that go into your ears can't do it. If the worship isn't coming from the depth of your heart, it doesn't mean anything before God. And so when you commit to your singing, when you commit to taking communion, let it be an offering of yourself to God. Let it be something that other people are actually engaged with you as you are with them because there's something sweet that's going on in this room. Let's pray.
Father, I would ask that there would be, there would truly be that commitment in each of our hearts to worship you. We claim to believe that you know our thoughts before we know them. We can't claim to believe that there's nothing hidden from your sight. And yet there's times that we live like a sham. We keep our lives kind of cloistered and hidden as if they can be kept from you, as if you cannot see. And I would hope that during these moments of worship, what has begun in this room over the last, the last year would continue to find its expression where there would be people that would be so committed, so radically committed to worshiping you that they kind of lose themselves. There's their commitment to, to offering their hearts to you causes them to lose their concern about who hears them or whether someone will think that they sing well or poorly. May it be something that allows us to just express ourselves to you and corporately allow it to be something that raptures us all into a sense of adoration of who you are and what you've done for us. And so we thank you for these things and we commit our time to you and we just ask that you would, you would cause our hearts to be full in these moments. We pray and we ask all these things in Jesus' good name. Amen. You can find audio of the series and other series alongside study questions and sermon notes at l2today.com. If you have any questions, send an email to feedback at l2today.com. 